0: Thank uh-huh. you. Welcome to Episode 97 of the Steptoe Cyberlaw Podcast. We're closing in on 100. Brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us uh, as we're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. I'm joined today, sort of, um, uh, by John Lynch, uh, uh, the head of the computer crime section at the Justice Department, uh, and by Jim Lewis, uh, uh, cybersecurity expert at CSIS. I say sort of because neither neither of them is actually here uh, we pre-recorded the interview section of this podcast uh, a few days ago at CSIS, where there was a big conference on uh, uh, hacking back, uh, active defense, direct action, whatever you want to call it. Uh, um, eh, but we do have a news roundup, uh, and for the news roundup, we've got Alan Cohn, formerly uh, head of strategy for DHS and number two at DHS Policy, uh, now of counsel at Steptoe. Uh, welcome, Alan. Thank you. Thank uh, you. Maury Schenck, our inimitable uh, European correspondent with more roles than I care to enumerate uh, uh, today. Uh, uh, Maury, good to talk to you.
1: Good to talk to you, too.
0: And Meredith Rathbone, uh, who's a partner in our international department uh, doing a lot of export controls and uh, a leading expert on what's happening on the intrusion software uh, developments at Wassenaar. Hi, Meredith. Hello. And uh, I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the record holder of returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. Why don't we jump right in? Tech and terror is the first of our topics. Uh, um, there's been lots and lots of action and uh uh, grave thumb-sucking uh, about what social media can do to discourage uh, terrorist movements that have moved online in uh, uh, a big way. Uh, um, a, the Europeans have been encouraging Facebook and others to crack down on hate speech online. Uh, 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 but in the U.S., uh, um, uh, all things are resolved by lawsuits, and it uh, looks like this one will be too. Uh, um, a contractor who was murdered in Jordan by ISIS, his widow, has sued Twitter, claiming that Twitter has provided material support to uh, uh, ISIS by failing to take down their extensive um, Twitter presence uh, or by failing to actually keep them from uh, reviving that presence on a regular basis. Uh, Alan, did you take a look at that lawsuit?
2: So I did, and it's interesting. Um, this is a suit brought by the the survivor, the spouse, of an individual who was killed. They were working as a contractor for DynCorp in Jordan. This was the, the, the police shooting where oh, uh, yes. the Jordanian police captain opened fire on the trainers uh, and killed several people, including... Uh, the husband of uh, of the woman who brought suit. Now, so she brought suit uh, on the grounds that the police captain in question was motivated by ISIS, right. and that Twitter was enabling this motivation by allowing ISIS uh, to spread pop- propaganda, raise funds, and attract new recruits on the service. And so she brought suit under uh, 18 USC 2333 the the statute enabling uh, individuals who are victims of terrorism to uh, international terrorism to bring suit um uh, for damages resulting in that um and uh, although the statute uh goes to um uh, the commission of acts of violence courts have held that material support meets the threshold uh for actions under section 2333. So, and material support, if I remember, m- includes a lot of
0: stuff. Uh, uh, a bank got tagged uh, with damages because they provided the, the, the they, they allowed the transfer of funds to the families of suicide bombers. Uh, uh, and then I think the Seventh Circuit uh, said, uh, um, was it was that the Holy Land Foundation uh, uh, was liable. Uh, I forget now what the Holy Land Foundation did uh funding for uh, they, oh that was hamas funding yes, right hamas funding. I, and and they said oh but we're only funding the good parts of hamas and uh, judge posner said uh, you know this is a little like giving a uh, a gun to a uh, a five-year-old to um saying well i told him not to misuse it, it is not really sufficient
2: right and so the, the the circuits are not in complete agreement on this uh how far you can stretch the statute, how far material support uh, goes. The question here, and it's relevant for all uh, social media companies and, and really internet communications companies, is, is you know, how much – if you can get over that hurdle, which seems the – each of these hurdles will be challenging. That seems perhaps the easier one. The question is how much can a company like Twitter or somebody else ignore the problem or knowingly allow – this type of activity to go on, uh, what's the threshold for the action that they need to take before they're going to be considered acting? Yeah, and uh, f-
0: failing to do anything, I think, p- exposes them to risks. Uh, they do have a Section 230 exemption uh, that says uh, uh, people who, who provide uh, fora for communication online are not responsible for what's said online. I think that whole concept is sliding away from everybody in this field uh, uh certainly outside of the US it's practically dead uh, and uh, uh in the US it's it's going to be under pressure and the way it'll come under pressure is they'll say wait a minute You're actively scouring for violations of the the Disney company's uh, uh, trademarks and copyrights. Uh, You're actively scouring for child porn. Uh, uh, You've got this big policy against bullying. Uh, uh, And now you're telling me that, oh, ISIS, that's just a free speech issue? I, I, I think it will become harder and harder for people to
2: say, oh, I'm... I'm not really editing this stuff, and I think you see uh, many of these companies either creating teams uh, to engage to address this or adding um, these kinds of public safety responsibilities to existing teams. The question will be, yes, how much is enough? How much do those teams need to do and it's and it is uh different than the typical you know let everyone communicate as they wish posture that we, we sometimes think about with social media. So I, 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 the debate over um, encryption
0: continues, and if you want to know where that debate could go and get bad for the companies, this is where it could go. Uh, you simply say, you knew that uh, bad people were using this technology that it was material enab- materially enabling them to communicate with people they were trying to seduce into terrorism, uh, and you did nothing. You didn't change your design, uh, so you provided material support, um, it, which means I think that uh, the companies are going to need more help from the federal government rather than just hands-off do no harm. Uh, we'll see. Uh, but I think this this issue, once it gets into the courts, once the uh, plaintiffs' bar gets their teeth into it, uh, it's never going to go away. Yes, I think that's right. All right. Uh, Wassenaar. Uh, there was a big hearing on Wassenaar implementation. Maybe you should take a running leap at this, Meredith, and, and bring us up-to-date on what the Wassenaar proposal was and why it's turned out to be so remarkably controversial. And I should say, uh, we have worked on that for uh, a coalition of companies, so we probably, everybody who's listening to this, should take our views with at least a small grain of salt.
3: <laughs> a small grain of salt. Uh, well, so because
0: we're right, that's why that- they should only take a small <laughs> gra- grain of salt.
3: Uh, so, so this, uh, so first of all, for, for anybody who's uninitiated, the WASNAR arrangement is this, uh, multilateral, um, group of countries, uh, mostly the U.S., uh, Western Europe, Australia, Japan, so on, uh, that, uh, set a common list of, of items to be controlled for export. And, uh, a couple of years ago, they started to focus on cybersecurity issues and um, came up with this rule to restrict the export of intrusion software. And to be fair to the writers at Wassenaar, uh, they don't actually restrict the exploits themselves, but they restrict essentially everything that surrounds them. So they restrict uh, the technology and the hardware and the software used to generate or communicate with or deliver intrusion software, uh, which is defined quite broadly. Uh, So anyway, that was agreed to at Wassenaar back in late 2013. And the U.S., uh, unlike its typical practice, did not implement it right away. It held off because I think the U.S. government officials started to get a sense that there were issues with this. Uh, And sure enough, there were. So they published a proposed rule uh, back in May of last year, and industry just exploded Uh, 265 comments were filed in response to that rule uh, pretty much universally negative and vehemently negative. And uh, and so the government officials ever since have been taking notice. Uh, Congress has been taking notice. Uh, Industry has been speaking loudly uh, and
0: but this is the first hearing, right? The, the Congress is- has not um held hearings on this until last week.
3: That's right. So last week, uh, it culminated, at least up to this point, in a hearing, a joint hearing by the House Oversight and Government Reform Subcommittee on Information Technology and the House Homeland Security Subcommittee on Cybersecurity and. Uh, it was a fascinating hearing. There were there were four government officials uh, present: uh, BIS, DHS, and two people from state. I I,
0: um, I, I can't help asking about the two people uh, from state because that turned out to be a flashpoint in the discussions between the Hill and the State Department. What was what was the story there?
3: Uh, yeah, so they had originally invited uh, the the director of um, one of the director of conventional arms threat reduction, who's the person who uh, oversees the negotiations at Wassenaar, on behalf of the U.S. government. Uh, the State Department announced shortly before the hearing that they were going to send a higher level official. Uh, deputy assistant secretary-level person, and uh, Congress said, you know, we want to speak to the people who were in the room, and they subpoenaed <laughs> the, the lower-level officials. So they both came. Uh, and, <laughs> they
0: uh, actually sent the subpoena? Uh,
3: I, that's what was reported, wow. yeah. Um, so anyway, it was an inter- interesting discussion, as you can imagine. Industry was uh, also there, by the way, um, testifying. So, on the uh, same panel, uh, on right? On the very same panel, is This is, yep. this
0: is the, the, all... Pretty unusual things to have that kind of a fight, to send subpoenas, to put industry on the same panel. It didn't sound like a good day for the proponents of the rule.
3: It was not. No. Uh, The Hill, uh, the the members of Congress who were there were uh, universally opposed, I'd say, and pretty vocally to the implementation of this rule as written. And that was clear from the first moment of the hearing through the very end. Uh, and they pushed uh, government officials over and over again on the process for implementation, but also on the substance. And I think uh, two kind of key, key things came out of that. One was that unanimously the government officials each said that – uh, when they agreed to this, they did not realize that the scope of the language was nearly as broad as it was. They thought it was much more narrow, and it wasn't until they started hearing from industry that they realized how broad it was. Uh, they all said that. Uh, and, um, and then too, uh, when, um, Uh, Dr. Schneck from DHS uh, was being questioned. She's Deputy Undersecretary for Cybersecurity and Communications, as probably most of our listeners know. But anyway, when she was being questioned, she was asked uh, whether this was detrimental to cybersecurity of the United States, to U.S. industry-critical infrastructure government, and she basically said yes. Uh, The rule would – The
0: bump. That's the bus going
3: over the State Department, I think. Hinder information sharing. Uh, and she said, essentially, information sharing is our number one uh, weapon in, in our effort to fight cyber, secure, uh, cyber intrusion. So uh, I think that was um, – she's the only government official, I think, who said that directly, but, uh, but she did say that.
0: Okay. So um, there's still a reg pending. There's still comments out there. Uh, what's, what's expected as a result of all this uh, uh, turmoil?
3: Uh, well, <laughs> it's a, the it's a question of the day. Uh, so there is still the right pending. Uh, the government officials are in the interagency discussion process. They've brought in uh, many government agencies uh, into the discussion, which also is unusual, by the way. Typically, this is a discussion between uh, the Commerce Department, the State Department, and, and the Defense Department. And uh, my understanding is that several government agencies have now been pulled in, Uh, So they're discussing interagency. They need to decide, do they implement uh, some version of this? They've said that they're not going to implement the rule as written. Do they implement some version of this? Do they take it back to Wassenaar? Um, You know, what happens next? I think uh, now, and especially post-hearing, that taking it back to Wassenaar to get it uh, significantly revised is a very real possibility. Uh, Whether they'll implement something domestically in the meantime, I think, uh, remains an open question.
0: Great. Thanks very much. Uh, um, And um, let's move along. We've got a a bunch of things that I want to cover quickly, but the one thing that's happening in Europe uh, is the European Court of Human Rights has, uh, surprisingly considering how abusive the European Court of Justice has been uh, to uh, um, American companies uh, uh, on privacy issues, seems to have... Uh, released a decision that's fairly reasonable about what companies need to do by way of monitoring the uh, communications of their employees for cybersecurity and related purposes. Maury, did you look at that decision?
1: I did, and it's an interesting decision. It's called Barbilescu versus Romania, and Mr. Barbilescu worked in an office where private use of the Internet was prohibited, and there was he signed up for a corporate yahoo messenger account and used it to talk to his girlfriend among others there were apparently some pretty juicy messages uh, which were not reproduced in the decision he was fi- he was asked whether he used had been using the account for personal purposes he said no the employer gave him a 45 page transcript of personal use uh, and fired him and he challenged it uh, first before the romanian courts and then at the year uh, challenged the Romanian court decision, um, upholding the firing at the Court of Human Rights, um, and they said it was okay, and they focused on two things. One, that there was a, a policy with some dispute how clearly communicated it was that the Internet couldn't be used, and two, that the company really didn't rely on the content of the messages. It was just on, um, on the fact that he had been making personal communications and uh in those circumstances they decided that the monitoring although it affected his private communications wasn't um they balanced that against the employer's interest and said that um the firing was okay
0: okay well that's uh, you know that that suggests a very fact-bound analysis of the problem but a willingness to balance means that uh, some Security measures, which really essentially require that you uh, monitor every keystroke that your employee takes on uh, employees take on the network, that um, if you can show that's necessary to protect against exfiltration of data by hackers, might uh, might stand up to uh, um, even a data protection human rights analysis.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the two important points for employers are one that. It is a balancing analysis, so you've got to show that it's a reasonable approach you've taken. And two, that you have to communicate to your employees very clearly what it is that you are doing. And, and I, th- but I think it's interesting the balancing, you know, uh, they said there's a privacy right here. The European Court of Justice has seemed to completely lack a sense of humor on balancing, where in a series of cases, data retention, they wouldn't balance private against law enforcement. Privacy against law enforcement, right to be forgotten—they wouldn't balance it against uh, freedom of expression, and in the safe harbor, they wouldn't balance it against uh, you know the the risk that the U.S. government might go after the information. So, this is a uh, a surprisingly moderate decision by a court that's supposed to defend human rights, and I think here it did, but uh, not what we've been seeing out of Europe recently.
0: Very cool. Um, so the um uh, let's let's run through three or four um quicker items the ftc has gone after a dental software company uh in what i have to say they got uh, you know cuz they can always get a uh, uh settlement they got a consent decree from this guy but what a shaky case this looked like uh, the guy had written his own encryption algorithm and it was you know not that good Uh and he said it was industry standard uh, encryption and that it would, um, en- enable companies to comply with HIPAA. Uh, and the decision of the FTC to take this on when HIPAA's not really, HIPAA enforcement not really their problem, uh, when the encryption wasn 't what was recommended, but it wasn 't uh, something that uh, had been prohibited uh, by HIPAA, as far as I can tell. There was just a a, a more standard AES uh, that was uh, recommended uh, it It was a surprisingly aggressive decision. They charged them two hundred and fifty thousand uh, dollars for doing this and seemed to have rested almost all of it on a notion that he shouldn't say it's a, a um, industry standard uh and yet there's no indication as far as i can see that anybody's data was uh affected to, or at least compromised by the uh, decision to offer this less good form of encryption a uh, uh, quite surprising um and actually not a decision that I suspect would survive the analysis that the LabMD case provided, which was, you have to show some reason to believe that there's actually been a compromise rather than just a risk of compromise. So uh, uh, news from the FTC, uh, Maury, uh, the uh, EU cybersecurity laws are making their way in this grindingly slow process through the, the European Commission and European Union machinery, what was the latest step there?
1: Um, there is a committee of the European Parliament, I believe, that has approved it just uh, last week, and it now has to be approved by the uh, by the whole Parliament and uh, and the European Council, and um, then it will, assumingly. Um, uh, it will presumably then enter into force and twenty one months later it will have to be implemented to, will impose some new cyber security rules and um, and some reporting requirements for security breaches
0: all right making making the process of adopting the cyber security act uh, look efficient and prompt uh, is the european union cyber security rules uh, um a, the Let's see. What else has happened? Um, Oh, cybersecurity attacks on industrial control systems, uh, we should probably spend more time on this, but there's been a lot of talk about that and a lot of action, unfortunately, about
2: yes, that. Yes, a couple of different things. Um, at the end of the year and in the beginning of, of this year, um, there was discussion about the um, intrusion at a, uh, a New York dam. Small dam turned out to not be uh, an incident of concern on its own, but illustrated how uh, hackers can come into uh, to a system like that. Um, and potentially get through, um, in that instance, from uh, using a wireless m- uh, a modem connection, um, but other ways into those types of systems. You had ICS-CERT, um, DHS's Industrial Control System, CERT release its end-of-year report uh, talking about um, uh, the increase in, um, in, uh, in intrusions over the past year. And then we have two reports coming out of the Ukraine, yeah, um, first they turned out the lights, uh, yes. and then they went after the airport. And now they turn out to the airport. Um, and at least according to some reports, the um, the turning out the lights was uh, traced uh, apparently traced back to um, to the Black Energy Three uh, right. module, Russian uh, module, and, and the the reports about the the uh Ukraine airport infrastructure uh just coming out this morning about that. So more to see on that.
0: Right. And it sounded like black energy was involved in that as well. Right? Uh, now, although it may be that there is no... Part of the Ukraine critical infrastructure that doesn't have black energy installed, that may not mean that it's always what's being used. Yes, but, exactly. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, very troubling for uh, those of us who uh, had hoped we wouldn't have that kind of an attack. Uh, looks like it's going to be. Uh, not the last resort, but the first resort, at least for the Russians.
2: Yes, and no, and no longer perhaps a, a theoretical, but moving into the realm of a predictable surprise at this point.
0: All right, uh, and uh, let's see. Um, NSA has put out a report on how it's going to implement uh, 215, uh, the new program under the USA Freedom Act, uh, uh, and um, it got... Uh, ho-hum reviews, even from civil libertarians who seemed to think it was fine. Uh, Yahoo settled an email surveillance uh, case, um, one of these uh, special uh, cases brought by the uh, plaintiff's bar uh, with enthusiasm. Uh, they had enormous potential damages. Uh, in the end, nobody got any money except the lawyers. Uh, it looks like they're going to get up to $4 million. That's a dirt-cheap settlement, it seems to me, and sets a precedent that suggests that these cases, even with standard uh, damages that are liquidated, uh, they're not the best investment for the plaintiff's bar. Uh, uh, And... um, uh, James Clapper, the uh, director of national intelligence, now joins John Brennan, the Central Intelligence Agency director in the Hall of Shame, having been hacked by the same teenager uh, who social engineered his way into John Brennan's account. Yes,
2: uh, and one other thing that I thought was interesting uh, this week, The Intercept seems to be up to its, uh, its normal tricks, having gotten uh, both the, uh, the White House briefing memo uh, and the document that was distributed by the White House at that encryption meeting in Silicon Valley. Oh yeah, the uh, summit, right? right. Yes, um, and uh, and also getting some some uh, anonymous reports from White House uh, uh, and other officials who were briefed on the on the meeting. So doing a uh, a good job of continuing to pull out information uh, of the type that they uh, uh, they like to find. No surprises, in, in surprises from no, well, no, no. <laughs> surprises from the notes. Um, you know, uh, Tim Cook. Uh, the Apple CEO who has seemingly become the self-appointed kind of statesman for the uh for Silicon Valley, uh taking a hard line that they should simply overrule the FBI director on encryption and, and just flat out state no back doors, and Loretta Lynch, the attorney general, uh being the one to to voice the counterpoint. Um, of needing to find the balance between privacy and national security.
0: I don't know, Tim. You know that's all going to go into the discovery file when they uh, bring the material assistance uh, lawsuit. Uh, you might want to be a little more cautious. Let's turn now to uh, our previously recorded uh, interview with John Lynch and Jim Lewis. For this interview segment, uh, we're taking advantage of the fact that uh, CSIS is sponsoring an entire day-long conference on uh, uh, active cyber defense. And um, John Lynch, who's the head of the Computer Crime and Intellectual Property Section at the Justice Department, is here. Uh, welcome, John. Thank you. Uh, John uh, has uh, uh, been on our program before, uh, Episode 41, Uh, so uh, uh, more than a year ago. This is an opportunity to catch up uh, on uh, what's changed and what hasn't. You might want to push that a little closer to you. Um, uh, And uh, Jim Lewis, uh, who is organizing the conference uh, and uh, uh, is one of the longtime thought leaders in cybersecurity, uh, is also here uh, uh, to perform the role of Greek chorus and one-liner supply. Uh I, I do appreciate that uh, Jim. So welcome. Uh, thank you, Stuart. Uh, so let's let's jump right into the hard part, uh, John. Uh, um, we're here to talk about active cyber defense, uh, which I, it, I have to say in itself is probably a defeat for whoever in the Justice Department a year and a half ago said uh, uh, hacking back isn't just illegal, it's a bad idea, uh, because it's, a, it's an increasingly thinkable idea. So I, I wanted to talk a little bit about policy. We can come back and talk about the law. Uh, but um, I gave you some examples the last time we we talked of people who saw their data leaving their system uh, and had an hour or two to log on and, and get it back, and, and no hope of getting law enforcement involved in that um, period of time. Uh, the old NRA slogan comes mm-hmm. to mind, uh, when seconds count, the police mm-hmm. are only minutes away. Um, and uh, I wondered... I have not seen CSIPs or the Justice Department repeat the uh, suggestion that they think this is just a terrible idea and immoral too, and maybe fattening. Um, it, it only it has been retreating to its position that this is likely illegal and uh, risky. Um, and I wondered whether the drumbeat of Interest in active defense has caused the department to rethink whether maybe some accommodation with uh, action by companies under attack uh, is appropriate.
4: Well, I, I think uh, I haven't been here for a year, so I haven't had a chance to, 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 to beat the drum. So, uh, no, uh, you know, I think it's important to talk about the difference between active cyber defense and hackback. Um, and one of the things that we're really happy uh, to participate in this with uh, CSIS is to talk about the various things you can do actively to protect yourself that don't necessarily go all the way to hackback. And there may be ways um, in which people can take the, the, the initiative, um, share information with each other. We talked about that on the last podcast that, mm-hmm. I, that, that I was on. Um, and take steps to, um, in coordination with law enforcement and in coordination with security researchers that affect, uh, that, that can, can positively affect computer security overall and the security of their, uh, of their entities. And, you know, we'll get to the law, but, you know, we have, we have stayed the kind of the course on the, on the policy that we don't think that the, this is a, that the sort of breaking into somebody's network, perhaps behind, somebody else's network, perhaps behind another intruder and then deleting data or, 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 or otherwise, uh, you know, uh, sort of, Mucking around in the, in the network, however you want to talk about it. However well intentioned and informed, it can, that is something that we continue to think is a, a bad idea. But at the same time, we want to talk about the, what are the limits of that? And we want to talk to security researchers about, um, what technologies are out there that can help uh, people uh, th- that can help people protect their systems, and 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 in fact, you know, uh, get their expertise, and then apply our expertise in the in the law, and, and our our view
0: from the policy, and have a, have a good discussion and debate about it. So let me let me try a a, a different technology, which is pretty common, uh, uh, beacons. Uh, uh, there are. Arguably, reasons to put beacons on uh, your uh, documents inside your network, uh, if you want to enforce limitations on where documents are kept in particular parts of the network, or whether people take them home uh, or not, and you want to know when somebody has done that. But it also has uh, potentially value uh, value in tracking the guys who stole it, uh, and indeed, and maybe in in seeing. Who's opening it, um, not the the thief, but the ultimate beneficiary, uh, uh, the company that is getting the stolen uh, IP and using it. Uh, um, Now, a beacon installed on your own network, obviously by itself is not uh, a a risk under uh, the Computer Crime, uh, Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. uh, um, But if it's stolen by a, a hacker, and opened by your competitor uh, who bought it from the hacker, uh, and it beacons back to you. Uh, is that a bad idea?
4: I think, from policy pr- perspective, it uh, it is not. You know, that is something that it, that I think is in the realm of things that we're we're interested in, ta- in in talking about. and I don't think that it is a bad idea. And you know, the actions that you're taking in installing a web beacon are on your you know on your system. Your, mm-hmm. it, the fact that somebody then drags it over and it's activated on another system is not something that you yourself had uh you know had the active uh of actions of of of, of doing but that's you know the bad guy and it may have effects in, in on other people's computer systems and i think when we talk about web beacons we want to talk about okay what is this going to do i mean I, you know there's a, there's a difference between a web beacon that for example um were to uh you know beacon back and simply say i'm here and you could of you know, sort of a logic bomb that says you know you open the word document uh, a word document and it doesn't find a you know particular file in the file system that it's going to try to get root and delete everything you know in uh, on the system you know I think those I think that's, are, that's a, those, those a are super, super beacon <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's a super <laughs> beacon you know but it, you, if you conceive of that sort of thing you know I think that that would be something that, that uh, from a policies perspective we would we would look at uh, you know we would look at differently um, but, but But I think that I think that the sort of theory of you know tagging your stuff. I mean, we do that in the physical world. The fact that you have a little metallic tab or you know you. Put one of those those new tile devices or something like that onto onto something you own, and somebody takes it out of your house, and you're when you, and, get,
0: to, when you get to my age, you need it for all for your yeah, wallet, well, your phone, right, yeah. everything. <laughs> you just say, where the hell did I leave that?
4: <laughs> and that's but but the, that's a good example of the type of uh, the the type of discussions we want to have um, on the uh, on these issues because uh, because uh, you know I think web beacons are, are something that um, is something that you're doing on your own network uh, and uh, and you know depending. On what, it, what it's doing, if it's beginning back, I don't. I think from a policy perspective, that that's something that we're, we're more interested in, certainly more interested in, in breaking into you know third party systems, and and, and, and that's why and we
5: stuff. picked the Title Act of Cyber Defense because. Hacking back in some ways is, is too narrow. It's 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 nice alliteration, but it doesn't actually capture the the range of things that could be done. And there are ambiguities, and we're hoping we can sort of flesh out what is permissible, what
0: makes sense, and what isn't. So yeah, I, I, to, to I think, characterize
5: I, it as hacking back. Is does a disservice to the debate.
0: Yeah, I, I I I I've been suggesting we should call it direct action, which has this this great <laughs> left wing yeah. activist uh, yeah. uh, uh, tone to it. Uh, but active cyber defense uh, uh, also works, except that it, it allows John to say he's for active cyber defense, by which he means he's against passive cyber defense. But, uh, uh, <laughs> I know no I'm, the uh, passive, <laughs> passive cyber defense is also uh, uh, important as well. So I, the, the other question I'd have in this context, uh, and I'm sure we'll be exploring this, is we've clearly seen in the last five years the emergence of intermediaries who provide cybersecurity services, uh, including um, a pretty serious um, I- intelligence gathering on third-party systems, usually with some kind of um, uh, approval, uh, uh, or in many cases, they are acting as contractors to uh, the U.S. government in one way or another. Um, and these guys are, so they know what they're doing. They're trusted. They're often hired by the government. Uh, They often have security clearances. Uh, uh, Many of the arguments against doing things on other people's systems are, you don't know what you're going to do wrong. The likelihood that these guys don't know what they're going to do wrong is vanishingly small compared to just some CISO who's, you know, Mad about what has happened to him. Uh, uh, doesn't that change the dynamic and the the calculus about cost and benefit? Well, I mean,
4: I think it's important to these these entities know a lot about the systems that they're contracted to. Uh, they're they're contracted to examine. Um, they're very very and much smarter than I am, especially uh, certainly on the. Um, on the overall, um, uh, on h- how, how systems, uh, uh how, how systems work overall. But I think it's important, and I think the, the responsible ones recognize that on some, on some third party system, they don't know all the configurations. They don't know how all the interactions work. Um, and when we've talked to security researchers, that's something that they, you know, a, a lot of themselves bring up that, you know, that, and that's, uh, we've had, prior dialogues at CIS, CSIS where um, security researchers have talked about, you know, knowing the limitations of w- what they are doing and being being cautious and being concerned about not only criminal liability, which is obviously where I uh, spend most of my time, but also civil liability because there's third parties out there who might say, you know, this security company w- was acting and they, they acted out of my system and they caused damage. Um, they may they may end up in litigation and that's
0: something that yeah, They might, uh, although, you know, I would take that case if for for a uh, piece of the counterclaim against the company. These are these are people whose negligence resulted in their machines becoming hot points uh, for an attack on me, on my system. And now they have the gall to uh, sue me for going into the system to try to remedy the attack that they made possible. Uh, I think um, uh, holding them responsible for the losses that I suffered to the attacker is a little more likely than that they will be able to uh, sue me for damage to the network that was already compromised by the PLA or the Russians or whoever.
4: Yeah, I, I think that that <coughs> is certainly an area where civil litigation is going to be, uh, you know, there's going to be a lot of lawyers who uh, make, uh, make, uh, make a dime on... Not that, on... <laughs> <wrong> that. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with that. Not that there's anything wrong with that. You know, but that is, that is a question. You know, at, at times people are saying, uh, people will Say you know how could I protect my system against the PLA against the you know uh, or or against a, a nation state um, and uh, and you know and so they're going to say I, I wasn't negligent and I think that that is going to be a important debate in the in the civil realm and you know we're of course watching the, those developments in that area because it, it has effects on it's going to obviously have effects on criminal law because you know the the and getting over into the legal side the community. Computer Fraud and Abuse Act and you know related statutes have these civil and uh, criminal components, and a lot of the uh, a lot of the sort of developments in the in the law are coming now on the civil side, and it's, some it's, of those are good for us, and some of them are are, are not so great. You know, I-
5: knowing knowing um, some of our foreign friends a yes, little yeah. bit, uh, if I was doing this, um, what I would do is uh, I would um, use the intermediary point. Uh, the system I captured to either transfer the data or capture, I would locate in a third party country. And then when you hack back, um, I would tell that third party country, I'm the FSB now, hey, look what I found the Americans doing on your system. Right. You could tie people into a lot of knots because suddenly you're being sued by France or India or, you know, you've got a whole, so there's a lot of ways you could make this fun from the uh, attacker's point of view.
0: Yeah, although, you know, uh, if the French want to sue everybody who's breaking into uh, hot, uh, uh, hot points uh, in their country, uh, uh, they've got a lot of lawsuits to bring. <coughs> After all, we, we host more hot points than anybody in the mm-hmm. United States, and I haven't noticed that uh, there have been that many prosecutions. Uh, mm. um, is,
5: it, it's just that when we think about this, we have to remember that it, the opponents are dynamic. Yes. And they will change tactics to adjust to whatever we do. Oh, I, I, I was and, thinking
0: and, you were going to suggest that they would uh, make all their hot points uh, be also uh, intensive care units in hospitals. Uh, I was
5: thinking, you know, I would probably do it in OPM and then let you guys have to break into OPM. <laughs>
0: you know. oh, talk,
5: well. talk your way out of that one.
0: <laughs> That's too easy. I <laughs> uh, <laughs> Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so um, let's talk a little bit about the law, because I, I, uh, there are other legal approaches, either uh, under existing law or changed law, um, uh, and that are worth thinking about, uh, and we'll talk about them some. Uh, one that I have been particularly enamored of, if, if you believe that this is a good idea, uh, that or that there are some times when you need to play outside your network in order to defend it, uh, and you're worried about legal liability, it seems to me that probably the best approach uh, is to uh, talk to state or local law enforcement uh, officers and have them deputize you. Uh, The statute has an express exemption for uh, protective (laughs) and law enforcement intelligence uh, activities of state and local and federal uh, uh, law enforcement and intelligence. Uh, um, So uh, if you've got a sheriff or uh, an attorney general who uh, believes that uh, there are times when operating outside your network is a good idea, um, is there any... Uh, reason you can't just ask for authorization from them to to carry out these activities.
4: I mean the st- the statute does allow, as you say, uh, you know, lawfully authorized uh, activity, uh, you know, of, of, of a but of a um, federal, local, or uh, state law enforcement agency. I think the. Deputization concept would be one that would have to be looked at and litigated um, I, I think the sort of scope of the ability of an uh, sort of a, a private entity to sort of just give a general authorization uh, would be uh, uh, would be I think limited by the, the scope of the authority to begin with. I mean, to to have um, the deputy of uh, county in New you know Western New York or where I'm from. Uh, I was I was
0: thinking Joe uh, Arpaio. Uh,
4: yeah, uh, you
0: know to to sort yeah, he of would say, he would make the hackers dress in pink too. And got him. <laughs> Perhaps.
4: <laughs> Um, you know, the, 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 I think, I think, uh, courts would, my, my view is the courts would tend to look at the remit of the law enforcement agency and how, and that the, the uh, that authorization probably wouldn't extend to sort of, you know, uh, international affairs, uh, you know, if it had, had not something to do with the, uh with the the actual enforcement of laws in that what what but in if, that if, jurisdiction if, yeah. but you're correct that the that the, the that there is that exception in the statute it just hasn't been litigated at so all so I, I, I and
0: i think that the problem with invoking you know you don't have the international authority is the FBI doesn't have international authority either they they, they don't have they can't get uh, warrants to break into computers in Taiwan can they
4: no uh, and that's something that we you know that we're concerned about from from our perspective sovereignty and and our cooperative relationships internationally um, uh, from from law enforcement perspective are, are, are very important to us one of the reasons that we're out there training and we're building our partnerships is so that when the FBI is is, you know, they, they certainly have FBI agents overseas, but they're working shoulder to shoulder in many cases with our European partners, with with uh, partners down in, in South America, and in Asia, um, to address these problems. And so, you know, a lot of what law enforcement's uh, work. Uh, in the cybersecurity area is building the sort of network so that, that we can exercise um, authorities within our sovereignty, but we can cooperate productively with our, with uh, friendly nations and partner nations uh, all around the world um, because there is no investigation that I'm in- involved with that doesn't have some international... Well,
0: that I, you know, let's follow that uh, thread just a little... Um, I'm positing circumstances where you really have to move very fast, Mm -hmm. uh, and and there certainly are situations like that. Uh, uh, And the Justice Department has worked pretty hard and come up with some creative ways of making sure that it has 24-7 coverage and ability to go to court (coughs) and quickly get uh, orders. Uh, So it's not inconceivable that within 12 hours of seeing an exfiltration from your system, if you've already got a very good relationship with the Bureau or or Secret Service, you could have a a warrant issued and be at the hot point, if the hot point's in the U.S. Um, If it's outside the U.S., let's say it's in the Philippines, uh, um, Are we stuck with MLATs as the process? Uh, You you might be able to go and get a kind of freeze order under uh, uh, the Budapest Convention, but if you actually wanted to stop the uh, file from leaving the hot point... uh, is it really a matter of having to go through the Mlat?
4: It doesn't necessarily have to be the, the Mlat, and again, that's where the cooperative—that's um, where the cooperative law enforcement part goes in. I don't think anybody expects that you know we're going to be able to write Mlats and and you know get 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 that thing uh, get that done in you know net, at net as some people use net speed um, or even you know U.S. mail speed uh, uh, for for uh, you know to to, to do things but um on the other hand we also have um the you know the cooperative relationships where phone calls um can be made and you know we've done cases of criminal cases where um, you know when we've been working on botnet takedowns, and it turns out that a piece of the infrastructure we didn't realize was actually located in, you know, country X. You know, we have the the, the good part is we have FBI agents who are able to call their counterparts in country X. We have the trusted relationships, and they can take the the, the steps under their law to, you know, for example, pull out infrastructure that is, um, that is, uh, ho- you know, helping to be the command and control uh, structure of a botnet, or is suddenly becomes the command and control. Um, um,
0: structure net because somebody's fighting back. So I, I, th- I assume also that the intelligence community has counterintelligence authority to, uh, uh, if they believe that this is a foreign government uh, stealing secrets uh, of um, uh, national importance from uh, uh, an American company, uh, they could pursue that and they would not have to rely on MLATs. They could di- do direct action of their own to break in and disrupt or... Track the, uh, uh, the attack
4: you're you're more of the expert on the uh, on, on intelligence authorities than I am uh, but you know I, you're right that they do exist and uh, and and the nature and scope of those is something that that I uh, tend to you know call Boblet or um, uh, others uh, in the intelligence community to opine on exactly what the the limit and scope of their authorities I don't know Jim if you'd like to to throw in on that I, I do think that this is something that we you know th- this is one of the many options and this is in government one of the reasons why we are trying to build our cooperative relationships among agencies as as well as with our international partners.
5: No, one of the things that troubles me about this discussion is it has an air of uh, unreality. And uh, it's kind of a a sort of a very um, not particularly mature thinking. Having worked with countries on issues like this, they, they tend to be rather touchy about their sovereignty. And uh, if they find out you've done something that violates their sovereignty, no matter how good an excuse you have, they're generally not happy about it. And the, the physical um, examples are, are compelling, that if if uh, a private individual kidnaps someone uh, under a court order, you know, all these child custody cases, it doesn't go over very well if an, the FBI was going to enforce the law in another country Without coordination, it doesn't go over very well. So I think we haven't tested this yet. And we're, you could argue, sure, it's a covert action, not by an intelligence person, but by one of these contractors. And they aren't caught. Okay, fine. But, but were they to be caught, I don't think it would be a good outcome. And that's where I think we need to put this in, a, in the context of how things really work in the world. Mm-hmm. I and mean, it's not Silicon Valley where people send. To say, I don't need no badges. No, you need a badge. And it's when they a catch stinking you, badge, I don't need no stinking <laughs> badge. And when they catch you without the stinking badge, they're not <laughs> going to be nice about it.
0: Yeah, I, I as as uh, 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 several uh, poor contractors who were doing. Uh, the Lord's work in fighting piracy, uh, have discovered they, they got caught in a typhoon. They ended up in Indian waters. The Indians found, uh, weapons in the hold of the ship that they were uh, using to protect, uh, uh, commercial traffic. And they've been sentenced to five years, uh, for, uh, uh uh, carrying out activities in Chinese in uh, Indian waters that they shouldn't have carried out. So yes, I, you're 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 absolutely right. Uh, let me let me ask one last question about how one might change the law. You you made the point the last time we talked that uh, creating a hole in the statute that says well you know if you if, if it's your stuff of course you can go after it uh, would create a, a lot of unintended consequences. Uh, And and that's a fair point, Um, which leads me to the question um, why we wouldn't want a no-action letter procedure under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Uh, That's what the SEC does in order to maintain enormous discretion under the securities laws to apply the law to uh, bad facts and at the same time to allow people who are doing reasonable things to do reasonable things. And the word authorization, which is, you know, utterly, might as well say, it's a felony to do bad things with computers. Uh, If you're going to give content to that uh, in an increasingly complex world, you need to be able to say, well, there are certain things we're going to allow, uh, and we're not going to prosecute. Uh, Wouldn't a, a mechanism like that Serve the interest of allowing exceptions to the broad sweep of the word authorization uh, without creating the risk of, um, you know, misuse of the exception.
4: I, I think that that's a really great uh, point, and it's something that I, I think is part of what we are. Um, you know, engaging in dialogue. I mean, we're not at a point where, you know, where we have the authority to write, you know, those, right. are those kinds of no action letters, uh, you know, that usually, you know, we, we have, the Justice Department does that in, in certain areas like the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, but those are, those are governed by regulation. In the meantime, one of the things that we're doing here is we're engaging with the security uh, researcher community. Um, we're trying to to sort of develop the conversation and be part of the conversation as the, both the industry and thinking on this matures um, because we want to make sure that the the people who are doing good work can do that work. Um, and if there's an area where if that, you know, if our discussions show a gap in the law, in the law then I'm certainly going to be one of the first people to, 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 to jump up and say, look, we need to, this is, this is something where we can write um, or we can, talk about an exception that, um, protects good behavior and we can write in a way that isn't gonna, isn't going to, to create a, a hole in, in, in the statute. And I think, you know, part of that comes from, you know, a, a more mutual understanding uh, among the, you know, the, the, Sort of law enforcement community and the the security community, and I think you know again, uh, CSIS is doing great work in kind of convening us, and and um, and and it has to be something where you know we go in and say we respect you know security researchers, we don't they're doing good work, and and many of them, even some people who might. Cross the line in, in something are are, are, off, are often well intentioned. On the other hand, I think the security researcher community has to see that we have a difficult job, and it's difficult sometimes difficult for us. Um, you know, when anybody can sort of say after the fact, "Hey, I was doing security researcher. I, I was doing security <coughs> research." You know, uh, you know, I, I sometimes tell a story about you know if a bank manager you know came in in the morning and found three guys in his vault who had tunneled up from the sewer, and they you know say you know and, and, we you thought know, you I, had our Tough. <laughs> yeah, you know, he says, you know, what are you doing here? And they say, well, hey, we're doing security research. We just proved that your bank, were, your your bank was vulnerable. Um, that uh, you know, that I don't think the bank manager would be terrifically happy uh, at, at that time, and I think there'd probably be at least one call to the to, to the police. Uh, you know, similarly here, we <laughs> want to encourage the we want to encourage the good behavior. Um, we think that we have a lot of interlocutors that uh, Leonard Bailey from my section and others uh, have have have. Uh, uh, have undertaken uh with with really smart and really well intentioned people from the security community who want to develop the conversation and want to develop it in a productive way and i'm 100% behind that and i'm 100% thinking about ways that we can protect the security researcher community and the and the and the, and the bring some maturity further maturation to the process and to the thought for all of us so that we can make a so that we can make a effective cooperation. Um, it's not going to be something that's done this week or this month or even five years from now, but it is something that
0: I think we're going to continue to do. Well, I think we would certainly welcome that. Let me let me close with a different topic. Uh, after endless uh um, back and forth and delays and uncertainty the cybersecurity act uh, no. just suddenly uh, showed up uh <clears throat> signed by the president as part of the omnibus uh, uh it's it famously says notwithstanding any other law you can do certain things share information uh, have defensive measures monitor networks uh, um eh, what Actua, and many of the laws that it is notwithstanding are laws that you're responsible for, for overseeing. Um, what changes do you actually see, expect uh, to come as a result of that? And what are you starting to see people prepare to do that they couldn't do before?
4: I, I mean, I think right now there's just a lot of uh, trying to figure out exactly what got in and what, uh, you know, what got out. It, it was something that, you know, there were a, a number of different versions of this act and, and, you know, the final version of the act I think contained some things that surprised, uh, surprised us a little and, um, other Yeah, the of, monitoring
0: uh, was a little broader, at least according to Oren Kerr, and I think he's right. Uh, the monitoring authority is broader than expected. To yeah,
4: and, and, uh, you know, and there's the part, part of what, what we're doing right now right is engaging with DHS, with other uh, departments on the, the sort of implementation guidance and the privacy and civil liberties guidance. So, I mean, that right now is the discussion so we're you, focused we're the focused Justice on. Department
0: and DHS have to write privacy rules for uh, stripping out uh, known pri- personal uh, information, information from right. the information that gets shared, uh, and at the same time, DHS has to do this at more or less net speed, uh, uh, so they need to make some rules rather than, you know, have their lawyers review the stuff. Uh, um, Those those rules don't necessarily apply to the private sector, but they could have some impact because the private sector – also has some responsibilities there, uh, so I guess the question is, uh, who's drafting them, uh, and uh, how fast do you expect that process to be?
4: Well, the the deadlines are tight. Uh, it's a sixty. Uh, there's at least for interim guidance, we need uh, I think sixty days is is uh, is the first deadline. The department and DHS are both engaged in it, but we're it's a it's a sort of broader conversation within within government, and I expect that we're going to engage um, others in the private sector as as well. Uh, you know. In, in the overall process, because again, um, I think, you know, and back to your original question, I think what we are, what we're hoping for is that this provides some, you know, some framework for more productive information sharing sort of at, for the Mm -hmm. types of threat information that, um, you know, especially DHS is focused on.
5: I'm I'm happy the bill passed because, Maybe now we could not talk about information sharing for a while, which yeah, has been be- <laughs> either a sacred cow or a sacred pig for all oh, these many years. And I don't really have high expectations for this. It's not going to change that much.
0: But it's nice that Congress was able to pass law. Yeah, and then we can get back to talking about public-private partnerships. No, I think
5: we can. <laughs> 1998, PDD-63, I mean, we're still doing this now. We're, we're approaching the 18th anniversary of this garbage when I hear this discussion, though, when a couple years ago I said that a lot of what we're doing is like the movie The Man Who Shot Liberty, Valance, where you move from private justice to the formal system in the West. And that is still the path we're on uh, in the Internet in general. It's different because the borders are, are different. Um, but sometimes when I listen to this uh, hackback or active defense debate, I think maybe it's not the man who shot Liberty Valance. Uh,
0: maybe it's Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> All right. Well, you get the last one-liner, right? Uh, uh, that was Jim Lewis uh, uh, from the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Uh, and uh, arr, <laughs> yes. Uh, I and talk like a foreign policy advocate. Uh, and uh, John Lynch... Uh, uh, the head of the computer crime and intellectual property section has been a great guest, uh, John. We uh, we give our guests an opportunity to. Promote any um, speeches or other uh, or films, uh, uh, materials know. they'd like to uh, uh, tell the uh, listeners about. So anything, this won't probably make uh, uh, be released until Tuesday of next week. But any any speeches you're giving or other activities you want to tell them about. Uh,
4: we're we're uh, just a lot of uh, I'm do- doing a speech out in San Diego in a, in a couple weeks uh, for uh, the financial sector, and uh, but we're also working I think uh, with uh, CS on and upcoming uh, symposium, uh, yeah. and that's what I'm really excited about. It's something uh, that uh, we've, uh, we've we've done. Uh, this is going to focus on kind of international and, right. and cyber, and that's going to hopefully be in the spring. We're still yeah, forward, early we're April, I think, yep. April. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and so that's that, that's something I'm really looking forward to.
0: All right. Uh, thank you very much uh, to John Lynch and to Jim Lewis uh, and also to Alan Cohn, Maury Shank, and Meredith Rathbone for their contribution to the, the News Roundup. As always, the Cyberlaw Podcast is open to feedback. Uh, send your questions, suggestions for interview candidates, etc., to cyberlawpodcast uh, at com. I should say we usually ask people if they've got any Uh, speaking engagements coming up and I wanted to flag at least two that I was doing. I don't know, Alan, do you have any? Well, maybe we give our advance notice of our RSA appearance. Oh yes, we should do that. We are going to be doing, we're going to be at RSA. I'm going to do two panels at RSA, and we will be doing the podcast from the stage at RSA. That'll be fun. Uh, I'm going to be uh, talking about Europe and cybersecurity and the Safe Harbor on Wednesday uh, in a. Uh, event, uh, uh, call-in event that is sponsored by the Federalist Society. And then uh, next week, uh, I will be in Israel uh, giving a talk on U.S. cybersecurity law. Um, so if you're uh, a listener in Israel, uh, uh, let us know. Send your... Uh, uh, request to Cyberlaw Podcast at stepto.com, and we will get you into the conference. Uh, or you can leave a message at 202-862-5785. Uh, and again, many thanks. We've gotten seven or eight reviews on iTunes uh, uh, and five stars uh, across the board. It's uh, very gratifying. So if you'd like to leave a uh, review. Uh, feel free to do so as long as you don't bring our average down. Uh, this has been episode ninety-seven of the StepToe Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by StepToe and Johnson. Uh, we've got uh, some upcoming uh, guests: Glenn Gerstle, uh, uh the NSA General Counsel; David Chris, uh, the General Counsel of Intellectual Ventures, and the author of the uh, most a uh, detailed book on uh, cyber uh, and uh, surveillance law, uh, and Amit Ashkenazi of the INCB uh, in Israel, uh, who I'll be interviewing while I'm over there. We hope you'll join us for all of those as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.